So I'm thankful. Um, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful to have the privilege of serving this church. I'm thankful to get to drive to Arkansas this afternoon and see my kid and bring him home. Um, I'm thankful that we got to see some college kids at the 930 service. I'm thankful for choir members joining us all the way from Colorado. It's good to see you. I am thankful, and I need you to know that, because this sermon is not a Thanksgiving sermon, <laughs> okay? <laughs> we're, we're about to read from Mark 8, and, and there are things to be thankful for. Of course, it's the gospel. Um, but this morning, thankful, also just kind of a mess, because, because I know that you all, that we all are just going through difficult things all the time. Um, and our job is to encourage you, it's to equip you, but our job is also just to tell you what Jesus has to say. And sometimes I wish he wasn't so direct, <laughs> uh, but today he is. Um, so today will be challenging, but I believe it's the gospel, I believe it's good. Um, so let's pray and then we'll get into this. Father, um, as always, we pray that, that you would guide us, uh, not only guide my words, um, but guide our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes, open them, help us to see and hear and understand in deeper ways, not just according to the ways that we see and hear and understand this world, but give us your mind, your eyes. Give us your understanding of the situation we find ourselves in each and every day. Help us to see what you're doing about it now and what you've done about it so that we can be restored and renewed and living in your presence forever. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So today we are in Mark chapter eight. Uh, this is the second half of the chapter. In a minute, we're gonna read verses 27 through 34. This is a really important part of Mark's gospel because it's the midpoint. We're exactly halfway through. Uh, but for Mark, halfway the middle, it's not just a midpoint. It's a mountaintop. Because I'm telling you that today, what we're gonna read today, this is the point. This is everything that we've been building to for the last eight chapters. At the literal center of Mark's gospel, it's 16 chapters long, in the middle of chapter eight, at the literal center of Mark's gospel, Jesus asks his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? Now, I told you last week, we told you a couple times, Mark's gospel is constructed around two questions. For the first eight chapters, that's the question everybody in the story is asking. It's the question that we, the readers, are asking, who is Jesus? This guy who's going around saying and doing all these things, like, who is he? And then it's here today on Mark's mountaintop in the middle of Mark's gospel, Peter is the one who gives us the answer, you are the Christ. And when Peter says those words, the purpose of the first half of Mark's gospel, it's now complete. Everything has been building up to this and we have our answer. Jesus is the Messiah. But like I said, this is the midpoint. So now there's a turn. There's a transition from one question to another. And for the rest of Mark's gospel, we are no longer asking who is Jesus. Instead, we are confronted with a question. What does it mean to you that he's the Messiah? And what are you gonna do with him? That's the question everybody in the story is confronted by and it's the question we are confronted by. What does it mean to you 
that Jesus is the Messiah, what are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What do you want? And if you come to realize that your expectations of Jesus are different from the reality that he has come to bring, what are you gonna do with them? So those are the questions that are gonna guide us all the way through the rest of the gospel. So let me read this. This is Mark chapter eight, read verse 27 through 30 to get us started. It says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And along the way, he questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. I think it's interesting. Can you scroll back for a second? Um, Everybody that they listed, all the people that the crowd thinks that Jesus might be, all, all those people are dead. <laughs> like, like how, did, how did they think that was going to work? All right, next slide. He continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question. And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. So Peter tells the truth about Jesus. Like in this moment, he and the other 11 disciples, they can see that he's the Messiah. But their eyes aren't fully opened yet. It's just like this blind man in the story that Beth just told. It's not clear. They know he's Messiah, but they can't see what that means. They don't understand what it means that the man that they're following is the Messiah. Just like the blind man in the story that Beth told. Jesus is ready to offer them a new set of lenses. They're going to get like spiritual LASIK surgery, which by the way, I'm really grateful for glasses and for LASIK surgery because we don't need to spit on each other's eyes anymore, which is really, (laughs) really good news. But he's going to change their vision so that they can see the whole picture, so that they can see it clearly. Problem is they're not going to like what they see. So let's keep reading. It's verse 31. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. That's the first time the elders and chief priests are mentioned in Mark's gospel. We haven't run into any of them yet. That's because we haven't made it to Jerusalem yet. Those guys are in Jerusalem. That's his way of telling the disciples where we're headed and who we've yet to confront. He has to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. I love that Mark told us that. (laughs) Because until now, Jesus has only spoken pretty much in parables, right? This is really important. Like we need to know this is no parable. This is not a metaphor. This is not an example. He's saying plainly what's gonna happen. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. And he summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, if anybody wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, they don't know yet that Jesus' death will actually be on a cross, right? So when he says, take up your cross, what's going on in their mind? They know crucifixion and who does the crucifying? Rome. Do you see like, so what he said in that little passage, like we're going to come up against some real confrontation and I'm going to suffer and die because of it. And that confrontation is going to come from Israel, from the heart of Israel. And it's going to come from Rome. We're going to face it from all sides. 
And if you wanna follow me, you must deny yourself, take up that cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like I kind of feel bad for Peter. I mean, he was so close, right? He was so close. I mean, one minute, like he gives the answer that we've been looking for all along. He gives the answer we've been waiting for. And then like in a heartbeat, what is he doing? He pulls Jesus aside. He tells Jesus, you know what? Why don't you come and follow me for a second? (laughs) Like the disciple rebukes the Messiah. And that word rebuke, it's used on purpose. It's a strong word. The only other time that word is used in the gospels is when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. When Jesus rebukes unclean spirits. When Jesus confronts the things that are destroying people's lives, destroying our relationship with God, with others, with ourselves and with all creation. And the only other time that word is used is when Jesus rebukes Peter. Because Peter has the mind of the enemy rather than the mind of Christ. To rebuke something means to put it back in its rightful place. And after what Peter did, Jesus is right to rebuke Peter. Get back behind me, get back in your rightful place. But we need to be careful. Like we need to be really careful before we judge Peter too harshly because I'm telling you, this is exactly what each and every one of us has done and on occasion, it's what we continue to do. Like we need, we need to put ourselves in Peter's sandals for a minute. Like, just try to imagine what was running through his mind. Now, I'm, I'm making this up. This is just my imagination. I, I can imagine Peter thinking and saying, like, oh my gosh, did you hear what he just said? Okay, I'm gonna take him aside. I'm gonna get away from the other boys. I'm not trying to embarrass him. But Jesus, come on. Like, these guys have left everything. We've left everything to follow you, families, jobs, I'm following you around when I could be home with my wife. You just can't say stuff like this. Like you're the Messiah, the anointed one of God. You're here to take Jerusalem back from these Roman occupiers. You're here to fix this mess. How are we supposed to put you on David's throne if you're dead? Jesus, what you don't understand is that God won't allow you to suffer. He's gonna send his angels to protect you if Rome or if the other religious leaders ever try to hurt you. Jesus, listen to me. I'm glad you realize it's you. It's about time, we've been waiting. You're called to lead God's people, but you're confused. You don't quite understand what it means to be the Messiah. That's how I imagine Peter rebuking Jesus. And you kind of want to chuckle for a minute at that last line, Jesus, you don't understand what it means to be Messiah, but I want you, we all together, let's take a minute and ask ourselves, if a savior comes today, what's the first thing you're going to be asked to, to be saved from? If a savior comes today, what's the first thing on your mind? What do you expect them to save you from? What do you want to be saved from? What do you want Messiah to do? Do you want him to do something about the society and culture around us that seems to have abandoned God? Like you want him to do something about our country? Do you want him to do something about the economy? Do you want him to do something about the Republicans or the Democrats? 
or both? You want him to do something about crime? You want him to do something about sickness? You know, listen, don't get me wrong. Jesus cares about these things. He cares about the things of this world. He cares about our present needs. You have to remember the end of the story in Revelation. It says God's dwelling place is among the people. They will be his people. God will be with them and will be their God. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna wipe every tear from our eyes because there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old way is gone. That's where we're headed. He cares about our present needs. But honestly, ask yourself, How long will it take? How far down the list do we have to go before we ask the Savior to save us from the thing that's truly destroying us? How far down the list do we have to go before we ask him to save us from the thing that destroys our relationship with him, our relationship with others, with ourselves, and with all creation? How long will it take before we finally ask him to save us from ourselves and from our own sin? It's one thing to confess with your lips that Jesus is the Messiah. But when you come to realize that your expectations of Jesus, what you want from him are different from what he's come to bring, what are you gonna do with him? Are you gonna take him aside and try to put him in his rightful place behind you? Tell him who he's supposed to be? Tell him who you want him to be? What will you do when you realize he's not the Messiah you want, but he's the Messiah that you need? So when I read this story, I think Peter's just doing what most of us would do. We got this, Jesus. (laughs) Just sit back and follow us for a minute. When things get really bad, we'll call you up. (laughs) But we're gonna show you how this is supposed to work. So Jesus offers a rebuke of his own and Jesus's rebuke, it comes uh, in the form of a new title. Jesus gives his beloved disciple a new name. What does he call him? Satan. Man, seem a little harsh to you? Y'all, Jesus isn't angry with Peter. He's not scolding Peter. He's not punishing Peter. He's not declaring that Peter was actually the devil himself. All he's doing is telling the truth. Like all of this should sound familiar. This comes from another gospel account. This is from the beginning of Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew chapter four. It says the tempter, Satan, came to Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days, you're hungry. Actually, your people are hungry. We're out here in the wilderness, look at all these stones. All you gotta do is turn them into bread. Let's end hunger now. Come on, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. God doesn't want you to suffer. And in verse five, it says this, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Like, do you see what Jesus was being tempted by Satan to do? Like from our point of view, these are not bad things. Jesus, end end the hunger. There's no need to suffer. Jesus, take your throne. (laughs) If you're the king, take your throne. Go ahead, show them. Show all of Jerusalem that you're the son of God. God won't allow you to suffer. He's gonna send his angels to protect you if Rome or if the religious leaders try to lay a finger on you. 
Like that's from the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And now here we are at the midpoint of Mark's mountaintop moment and we find Jesus rebuking a disciple he dearly loves for doing the same thing. Peter's doing the same exact thing. He's tempting Jesus to take the throne in the wrong way. He's saying, Peter, you want me to take the throne the same way Satan tempted me to take it through a display of power, but come on, how is that any different from the way Rome took this throne from us in the first place? Peter, you're thinking with the mind of Satan. That's the mind of this broken world. Now I want you to get back behind me. Get back in your place. That's where you belong. You follow me, not the other way around. And you have got to understand that I must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and after three days, and will rise again. So look, we can see where Peter's coming from. From our perspective, he's not wrong. What Jesus is saying makes no sense. But that's because he, basically along with everybody else on earth, we understand the Messiah a particular way. We're looking for the Messiah that we want. And what Jesus says makes no sense. The Apostle Paul will write about this later in the New Testament. He'll say that, This gospel, Jesus overcoming evil by dying on the cross, Paul will say that it's foolishness to Greek people and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It makes no sense because everybody's looking for the Messiah they want. But this story is telling us he's not the Messiah we want, he's the Messiah that we need. And for him to be the Messiah we need, he must suffer and die. Jesus doesn't say he will suffer and die, he said he must The question is why? And I'm telling you that without new eyes, without a new mind, without a new heart, we're never gonna understand it. I wanna read something to you. It's kind of long. This is, it comes from uh, the book by Tim Keller that I've been sharing with you, Jesus the King. Um, It's long, but this is just one of the best ways that I've I've ever heard this explained. This is why Jesus had to suffer and die. So he he writes this. He says, a theologian named William Vanstone says that all human beings know the difference between false love and true love. He says that the difference is that in false love, your aim is to use another person to fulfill your happiness. That kind of love is conditional. You only give it as long as the other person is affirming you and meeting your needs. That kind of love is not vulnerable. So you hold back so that you can cut your losses if you need to. In true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is that person's joy. That means that your affection is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether your loved one is meeting your needs, whether you're loved in return or not. That kind of love is unconditional and it's radically vulnerable because you spend everything. You hold nothing back. You give it all away. You deny yourself for the sake of another. Now here's the hard part. He goes on to say that our real problem is that none of us are fully capable of giving true love. He said it's what we all want desperately, but none of us can fully give it. He says that all of our love to some degree or another is somewhat fake. That there's kind of a mercenary quality to our relationships. They usually begin this way. We look for people to love who will affirm us from the start. 
It's a sign that we're safe to invest our love because we're pretty confident we're gonna get love in return. But from the very beginning, when we do that, our love is conditional. It's not vulnerable because we're not loving the person simply for him or herself. We're loving the person partly for what we're going to get in return. Now listen, he's not saying that we can't love at all. I think a parent's love for a child is one of the clearest examples of of our ability to truly deeply love, even though over time in some situations that can change. I experienced the negative side of that up until a point. I also experienced the positive side of that when I married into a family who has loved me unconditionally from the start. We're capable of love, but none of us are capable of giving the kind of love we all desperately want. That's just the reality of being a broken human. There's no judgment, it's just reality. So he goes on to say this. He says, what we need is someone to love us who doesn't need us at all. Someone who loves us radically, unconditionally, vulnerably. Someone who loves us just for our sake. This is so important. He says, if we received that kind of love, it would so assure us of our value. It would so fill us up that maybe we could then start to give that kind of love to others. Why did God create us and later save us at the ultimate cost to himself when he doesn't need us? It's because he loves us, truly loves us. And his love is perfect, radically unconditional, radically vulnerable. And what happened on that Roman cross, that's the proof. It's the evidence of this perfect, radical, unconditional, vulnerable love. The empty tomb, that's proof. It's evidence of God's sovereign power over all reality, over all this mess, over everything that would separate us from him. It's proof of his power over injustice, over sickness, his power over our sin, his power even over death itself. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's done. And he has offered that love to you. He's offering that love to everybody you meet. Like that's the gospel, and this is really good news. So the question is now what? What do we go and do? We can't do anything to earn that love. He's just given it. So what are we supposed to do in response? In light of such radical love, what do we do? And it's one word, and you're not gonna like it. <laughs> Nobody likes it when they hear this word, but it's because we misunderstand it. We are to repent. The only right response to the gospel is to repent, but you have to remember, to repent simply means to change our mind. Metanoia in the Greek, put on the mind of Christ, change the way we think about the world, and then change our direction. Shuv in Hebrew, just turn around and go the other way. No longer following my way, but now following the way of Christ. To repent, remember rebuke means to put something in its rightful place. To repent means that we're putting ourselves back in our rightful place. And rather than rebuking Jesus, Peter should have turned to him in repentance. We should repent. To seek the eyes of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, and the heart of Jesus so that we can fully make the turn. The good news is, as always, even in the middle of this mess, he's always here to help us. 
right? He graciously puts Peter right back where he belongs and he'll do the same to us. He offers us those gifts of new eyes, changes the way we see the world. That's what those blind man stories are trying to show us. He gives us a new mind. He'll change the way we think about the world. He'll give us a new heart. He'll give us that ability to love him and to love the world in a radical way. And then just by his life, he shows us the way. He shows us how to live. Our session has begun this process of discerning what God has in store for us. Um, Now that we can finally move on from the craziness of these past three years, we're trying to figure out what's next. I mean, we decided that rather than to sit and scheme and come up with our own plans, that we're gonna let one question guide us. The one question as we figure out what God has in store for us, what is the mind of Christ? With every question in every situation, what is the mind of Christ for our church in this situation? When it comes to worship, when it comes to missions, when it comes to our life together in community, what is the mind of Christ? Because here's the truth. Y'all, the future of this church is not dependent upon what I want. Thank God. It doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what any one member of our session wants. To be totally honest with you, and like, don't take this wrong, forgive me, but it doesn't matter what you want. The future of this church is not dependent on all of our individual wants. The future of this church is dependent upon Jesus. It's his church. So all that matters is what he wants. So the only question is, what is his greatest desire for us? So that's the question we're asking at every turn. What is the mind of Christ in this? Like, I want you to know, your elected leaders, this is the simple question we're asking as we try to figure out what to do next. But I'm telling you this for another reason. What if you took that question and asked it of your own life? Like if I was created by God, if I belong to him as a child of God, if I'm redeemed and restored by the work of Jesus, then I am no longer my own. Like he's inviting me to deny myself and to carry the cross. Just as he did. Remember I told you when he said, carry your cross, the disciples didn't know what he would do, right? They didn't know that he would actually do that. They just knew the idea of the Roman cross. Imagine what it was like for his disciples when they saw him carry that cross. Like, what do you think went through their minds? He's not asking us to do anything that he's not literally doing right here in front of us. I belong to him. It doesn't matter what I want. What matters is who he's created me to be and what he's put me here to do. Y'all, that's hard. Sam, how old are you? 96. 96. You got it figured out yet? Nope. Nope. (laughs) I knew the answer to that question before I asked. What are you talking about? But it's the journey, right? Somebody sent me this just this morning. I was working through this and I got this text. It said this. A life well lived requires seemingly insignificant daily choices to deny self and trust God. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. So what then is the mind of Christ for me? What is the mind of Christ for you? So here's where it gets personal, and uh, this, this will be hard, but if, if you'll just go through this, we can go through this together. Um, Everybody in this room, you have all come in here with some burden. 
with some struggle, with some weight, some difficult thing that you're wrestling with, some more than others. Some it's small things, some you were dealing with the heaviest things a human can deal with. Like I have no idea what it is. I don't know what you're all bringing in here today. Maybe it's some decision that you're trying to make. Maybe it's a suffering that you're going through. Maybe you're desperate to receive forgiveness from somebody or maybe you need to give forgiveness to somebody. You don't know how to do it. Maybe you don't wanna do it. I don't know what you're wrestling with, but you do. And so does Jesus. So this morning, I I want us to take a second and I want us to take it to him. And I'm gonna give you two simple steps and we'll have like a minute of awkward silence as we do this. I'm gonna guide you through it, but I just wanna invite you to do this now. We're not gonna get all of our answers right now, but this is at least a practice that you can take home with you, okay? Are you guys in? Are you okay? All right. Like whatever that burden is, between you and him, just say it. Say the words. Tell him your struggle and then ask him directly. Ask Jesus directly. Say, Jesus, what is your mind in this? Help me see this situation the way you see it. Give me your eyes so I can see this from your perspective. Whatever it is you're dealing with, just say it to him and ask him to help you see what you're going through from his perspective. I'm gonna take a moment of just awkward silence just to give you a chance to do that. These answers take time. You're probably not gonna find the answer now when the session meets and asks that question, what's Christ's mind in this? Guess what we hear next? A whole lot of silence. (laughs) This takes time. But it also takes discernment. Like, Like when you go through this process and you just surrender and ask that question of Jesus, you will eventually find a sense of peace. But but you have to discern if that's coming from Jesus or not. I had a professor who once told me, when you're really listening to Jesus, you have to be really careful. You gotta figure out if what you heard actually came from him or if it's just what you ate for lunch, (laughs) right? Like, is that coming from deep within you or is that actually coming from Jesus? So, but we have a way of of knowing. We We can measure what we receive against the kind of answer that we would expect from the Jesus that we meet in scripture. We can talk to people that we know and trust and love and ask him to do the same thing and see if it lines up. If it lines up, if what we hear sounds right, if it sounds like it would come out of the mouth of the Jesus that we read about in the gospels, then your sense of things can give you confidence and you can move forward. Like just a quick example, if somebody has offended you and you're wondering if you need to offer forgiveness, this is a really simple one. I mean, this is real, it's serious. Some of you are really going through this. I don't mean to make light of it, but it's actually pretty simple because the Jesus that we know from scripture the Messiah who died to forgive you, to forgive even his own enemies? Is he ever gonna tell you that you shouldn't forgive somebody? (laughs) No, so when you take that question to him, if you're truly seeking the mind of Christ in that situation, he's gonna confront you on it. He's gonna say, of course you need to forgive him, but then he's gonna graciously offer you the tools that you need. He's gonna give you the peace and the confidence you need to take the next right step. And this is the next step. The next step is just to ask him, 
Like now that I see the situation from your perspective, what do you, what, what do you want me to do? Like what would you have me do and how would you have me do it? When you find peace, if the action that you feel led to take is in line with the actions of Jesus that we find in scripture, then you can trust him and you can move forward. Like for example, if you're convicted and compelled to forgive someone else, if your forgiveness of them depends upon them suffering first, if it depends upon them first paying a price before you will forgive them, that is not the kind of forgiveness Jesus himself has offered to you. That's why we need to ask both questions. What would you have me do? And how would you have me do it? Right? Like, to use the old bracelets from the 80s, like, what would you do? (laughs) Jesus, if you were me, what would you do? How would you have me do this? Now, this is why we need to know who Jesus really is. This is why even when it's not comfortable, we are here to preach the truth about the Jesus we find in the gospels because we need to know him as he really is, not as we want him to be. And scripture is our guide. And when our sense of his will for our lives and the scriptures, their testimony of who Jesus is and what he did, when those are in alignment, then we can move forward with confidence. We can have real peace. And I'm telling you, those burdens, they start getting a whole lot lighter. I can't promise that they're gonna go away, not until that day when he makes all things new, but I can tell you they will get a whole lot lighter. He's not the Messiah that my human nature wants, but he's the Messiah that my broken nature needs. He's the Messiah this whole world needs. His way of seeing the world, thinking about the world and living in the world is radically different from ours and praise God for that. Praise God for that, that's really good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we've been, we've been talking a bit um, pretty vulnerably about opening up to you, about letting you guide us through difficult things. Um, maybe it's no coincidence that you would have us do this on Thanksgiving week um, as we prepare to gather with family and friends. Um, oftentimes, those kind of gatherings are the ones where there's the most tension and the most need for forgiveness and peace, where some of those burdens really do need to be lifted. So we pray that you would guide us through this week in that way, that Maybe that little exercise we did today, we can just take Thursday and we can say, Jesus, this Thursday, when I see this person, how can I see them with your eyes? What would you have me do? And then we can take that into the season and next and let it transform us from within. So God, give us the courage to trust you. Give us the mind to understand the gospel so that we can share it so that we can help others see that it is truly good news and it's the only hope we have to change the situation we're in. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.